Welcome to Auckland Conversations, ideas for becoming the world's most livable city. Well, welcome everybody uh, to Living on the Water, another Auckland Conversation event, or Conversations event, to inspire you and to stimulate your thinking. But we've got plenty of people on our panel that'll stimulate your thinking. Welcome to the audience in the room, our panel of speakers, to our Water Edge Symposium delegates, and we also welcome those joining us on live for a live streaming. My name's Richard Aitken. I'm chairman of Punuku Development Auckland, and we are the hosts for tonight's session. Tonight, we welcome a panel of international speakers who are here for the Water, Water Edge Symposium, an opportunity for the international waterfront leaders to share their experience and vision in creating enduring waterfronts around the globe. More about that later, but uh, before we get into it, I'll just give you a few pre-start briefing notes and safety notes. You're welcome to tweet during the event using hashtag Auckland Conversations. If you wish to join the conversation, you can ask questions during Q&A or via Twitter. The Auckland Conversations feed will be monitored and time permitting, we will include questions during the panel discussion. Auckland Conversa Conversations endeavour to ensure these events are inclusive and accessible. A full transcript and captioning of the event and presentations will be available on the Auckland Conversations website in the next few days. In the unlikely event of an emergency, an alarm will sound. Please make your way to the nearest exit. They're either behind you or in front of you. You will be directed where to go by venue staff and security. You're probably already aware that the venue is a non-smoking venue. Bathrooms are situated behind the bar area. Uh, I suggest you turn your mobiles to silent. Uh, just a few acknowledgements. Water Edge Symposium delegates, councillors and local board members. We're delighted to have Councillor Chris Darby with us this evening to make closing remarks and a vote of thanks. I welcome uh, the other councillors and local board members including, and I think they're all here but I'm not sure, Penny Hulse, Councillor Penny Hulse, Councillor Ross Clow, Councillor Cathy Casey, Councillor Desley Simpson, and, and Chair of the local Pukitapapa Board, Harry Doig, and Pippa Coombe, Chair of the Waitamata Local Board. We should also acknowledge and, and thank uh, our partners, uh, Auckland Conversations partner sponsor, which is Resine. Also thanks to our program supporters, Brookfield Lawyers, Boffa Miskell, Architectural Designers New Zealand, New Zealand Institute of Architects, New Zealand Planning Institute, and the New Zealand Building Green Council. I think all this is on the screen behind me, I'm not sure. Now let's get down to business. As many of you know, Panuka Development Auckland is a council controlled organisation that merged with Waterfront uh, Auckland and Auckland Council Property Limited. Building on work that goes back to the former Auckland Council and Regional Councils, 
We continue to transform Auckland's waterfront into a much-loved and well-used part of the city. We're constantly learning from the million-plus people who visit Wynyard Quarter and Queen's Wharf every year, and from Manawa Whenua and development partners and from cities around the world. We are currently hosting 12 waterfront development leaders from 14 cities around the globe for the Water Edge Symposium. Over three days of discussions and workshops, um, uh, after three days of discussions and workshops, we will take away lessons that will benefit all, and particularly Auckland's next phase of the waterfront development over the coming decades. For more about Water Edge, the program, the attendees, please go to the website advancewateredgeoneword.com. The Water Edge website is a growing repository of information on the symposium guests, their cities, and the conversation as it unfolds. As you all know, Auckland is also grappling with how we house our growing population without sacrificing the things that are special about our city and our harbours. Tonight's discussion on living on the water brings together both those threads with ideas from four urban regeneration leaders from New York, Hamburg, Glasgow and Copenhagen. They will share their experiences on how water edge developments can respond to pressing housing shortages, how to manage density and diversity, retain existing communities and welcome newcomers and for, forge a shared sense of place. We can share some experiences on earthquakes. It is now my pleasure to introduce Professor Greg Clark, who's going to lead the conversation tonight with our guest speakers. Many of you know Greg, who has an ongoing relationship with Auckland going back several years. This week he is here to moderate the Water Edge Symposium, guiding and challenging the conversation to extract maximum benefits for Auckland and the attendees. Greg's expertise covers city economies, city leadership, globalisation and trade, planning and transport, city and metropolitan development, technology and smart cities, urban investment, national and regional strategies. Greg is the author of 10 books, many papers and reports on city economic development issues. As chairman of Business of Cities Limited, Professor Greg Clark provides intelligence, intelligence and benchmarking services on cities to a global client base. These include intergovernmental organisations such as OECD and World Bank and major firms such as JP Morgan and Airbnb. Very pleased about that. To add to his portfolio of directorships, he has recently been appointed to the Board of Transport for London. Greg will introduce tonight's speakers and manage the discussion at the end of the session. Don't forget, if you wish to join the conversation, you can ask questions during Q&A or via Twitter. Welcome, Greg. Uh, Richard, thank you very much. Kia ora, everyone. Good evening. Very nice to see you all here. Great pleasure for me to be back here. And on behalf of the other international visitors, let me just say a very big thank you for the very warm welcome that we've received, both from local traditional leaders, from Mayor Goff, 
from other representatives of Auckland Council, from Panuku Development Corporation, and from everyone else. We're really very grateful for the invitation. Now, Richard has introduced really the evening for you, so I have very little left to do. What I want to do is just find out a little bit about you. So firstly, have you ever been to, have you ever been to New York? If you have, please raise your hands. Wow, Carl, they've all been. Right, have you ever been to Copenhagen? Nearly as many. Have you ever been to Hamburg? Wow, this is a very well-traveled group. Have you ever been to Glasgow? I'd say there's more Glasgow's than Hamburg's there. Wow, that's amazing. Okay, I won't ask you if you've eaten a hamburger in Glasgow. That's a different story altogether. Okay, that's great. How many of you currently live near the water? If you do. Okay, 95% live near the water. How many of you feel that over the last 10 years, what's happened in the Auckland waterfront is positive or negative? How many of you think it's positive, what's happened in the waterfront? Okay, how many of you think it's negative, what's happened in the waterfront? Okay, there's a couple, three, four, five, six, seven. We wait for the sharp questions from them later on. We look forward to all of that. Um, not much more for me to do except to say that each of our very distinguished guests is going to speak for about 10 minutes uh, on the broad theme of living by the water in their city. Then I'm going to open it up immediately to your questions and we'll take as many of them as, as we can and we'll try to have a real conversation. So firstly, please join me in welcoming, if you will, Rita Justison. Rita is the Director for Planning and Architecture from CPH City and Port Development in Copenhagen. Rita, welcome. Thank you so much. Hello, everybody. It's a great pleasure to be here. I'm going to present to you two examples of living by the water from Copenhagen. The one, the North Harbour, is a huge project. Uh, to us, I would say it's a huge project. And the other one, the Paper Island, is a small project, but they are both very important to Copenhagen. And they are both chosen by a competition on the master plans. I have put up three questions you can ask yourself about living by the water. In the North Harbour, we are allowed to build three million square meters of floor area. And my three questions are, how to be site-specific uh, concerning the North Harbour, meaning how do we keep some character of the for former harbour uh, area? How to use the potentials of the water, as here in the North Harbour, we have uh, the piers and the open sea that merge with each other. And the last one, how to give something back to the city, meaning how do we add new qualities to the city. In the North Harbour, such a huge project, the infrastructure are very important and we are doing a new metro line with three uh, stations. The red line, we are doing a new access road, the blue line, 
And then we have already moved the cruise ships from the inner part of the North Harbour and we will move the container terminal too to that uh, corner in the northeast uh, part of the North Harbour to get room for the development into an urban district. The structure plan, which was the um, we, we have from the competition, it says islets and canals. That means that the concept is that we will have small city quarters separated by water, intimate canals, bigger harbour basins and the open sea that surrounds the, uh, the area on three sides. And it also says synergy between blue and green areas meaning that uh, we locate the green areas at the water edge. When we are talking about the North Harbour, we talk about the five-minute city. That means that you can reach uh, all your daily life needs by a walk of five minutes. We talk about the metro, a high-class public transport system that connects you with the rest of the city. We talk about excellent shopping, 10,000 square meters of traditional shops in a main shopping street. Uh, and we talk about recreational offers in public spaces and along the water edge at promenades and in the water. We talk about direct access to the water and we talk about a system of waterways by connecting uh, the harbour basins with each other. All in all, we talk about making the North Harbour a new destination in town. And the other example, the Paper Island, it's called so because for many years those warehouses and that's the, the grey spot in the middle. Those warehouses were used for newspaper paper, so the paper island. It's a small one, and we are only allowed to build 45,000 square meters of floor area. And again, you can ask how to be site-specific, as this spot is located just opposite the medieval city, and it's surrounded by historical neighborhoods how to use the potentials of the water. Uh, the island is surrounded by water to all four sides, but here it's uh, more intimate. And how to add new qualities to the city. So the paper island, the architecture, will take character from the historical surroundings. You see all the, the, the old buildings in brickstones and with these specific roofs. We have uh, had not contemporary but temporary activities in the old warehouses for four seasons now to find out what would be the most popular activities, how to activate the uh, island. And street food, uh, for instance, have been very, very popular. As you see, Copenhagen people like to sit outdoor and have a relaxed time. So the new architecture 
uh, of the paper island. It will be modern architecture, but with a twist, with really certain roofs. We call it the paper island roofs. And we will have functions with public activities in the huge halls at the ground floor. And then we will have private housing on top, meaning that we give something both to the city and to the locals. We will have pro public promenades all along uh, the island and again with the direct access to the water. We will have a public swimming pool with both indoor and outdoor pools. In other uh, way, we will make Pi Paper Island a new destination in town. Thank you. Rita, thank you very much indeed. Who's contemplating another trip to Copenhagen now? Let's see you, right? And Rita, when's the invitation coming? Tomorrow, very good news. So you talked um, uh, firstly about the North Harbour, then about Paper Island. People will remember, I think, you stressing the importance of connectivity. But when you came on to talk about Paper Island, you also spoke a lot about tactical urbanism, innovation, experimentation, finding out what the people want by testing the space. Very interesting. We're going to go immediately now to Hamburg. Great pleasure to welcome Professor Jürgen Brunz Bereltag. Jürgen is the Chief Executive Officer of the Hafen City Hamburg, let's call it Development Corporation, but you will correct me in a minute, Jürgen. Welcome to you. Thank you for the invitation to speak here in Auckland. It's a great pleasure after two days having been here. Um, but I'm afraid I cannot tell you a lot of new things, not about Hamburg, but about waterfront development. Um, one interesting thing in terms of waterfront development in Hamburg has been that actually it is very difficult, almost impossible, to live close to the waterfront because 800 years, people in Hamburg have been live, uh, liking their port. They are port lovers, and due to the fact that they are port lovers, no one really could live close to the waterfront, at least not historically in the last 150 years, because the port came, became functionally separated uh, between residential or mixed-use areas and a functional industrial port. And what you see here, in my upcoming slide, is something what allows for actually living at the waterfront, but actually what you see uh, a little bit later is a clear distinction between living at the waterfront very close, well, that's surprising, that should look a little bit different. So, um, so living at the waterfront meant until maybe 20 years ago living close by, and now I will try to make it clearer, living around an inner city lake. That's the Lake Ulster, and that has been historically, until today, almost the high quality living area. And what you see here in the south is the commercial port. It is a very big port. In the beginning of the 20th century, it was the third largest port. 
in the world, and still it is among the busiest 20th port, and, and it is 105 kilometers away from the sea. So it's actually a riverfront we are talking about. So when we are talking about living at the waterfront, we are looking at that picture. We are looking at a lakefront of the inner city, it's aquatic and leisure life at the Alster River, and you can see very easily why our sailors win a bronze medal in sailing and your sailors win the World Cup. <laughs> yeah. And you see residential housing is very comfortable, white villas, so to say, in the city center. But when you come to the port area, you see that is very much looking like a messy place, uh, a big riverfront, very diversified, uh, with a lot of infrastructure, with railroad yards, production, and so on. And that basically came under pressure in the 90s because port operations became more efficiently and we needed completely different spaces specifically for container terminals and so on. It's not a deindustrialization of the port and it is not the shrinking of the port, but it's the refunctioning of the port which was our starting point to get urban development close to the river. So the riverfront is actually very much a working port today, but we sliced out a little bit. A second issue, which is a very specific issue with living at the waterfront in Hamburg and not at the Lake Alster, is living with the risk of water. Here you see breaking dikes in the 60s. Quite a number of uh, people died and it shows the pressure of the water which is brought from the northwesterly winds in the estuary. So we have to have a solution for that type of situation in order to have a livable waterfront. And that is basically achieved, and you will see this a little bit later, by raising all the land in the former port area by roughly three to four meters. So we are not going basically into, the, into new areas, but we build a completely new infrastructure. We have to, to make this place resilient. And to show you how this place can actually be made uh, flood resilience to a certain degree, we had in the last 10 years one flood which was actually coming up to the levels which I showed you in the previous pictures, uh, roughly six meters and 40 above sea level. And then half the city looks like that. We have a retention space actually, which is working like a controlled flooding space where all the promenades can actually be flooded. You see the lamp poles staying in the water. You see some of the fencing. That's the same picture from the same direction. We raised the land another one meter after the latest report on the World Climate Council in the eastern part so that maybe we are sufficiently high with our new level of the city. Living at the waterfront does not only mean living, so to say, with the water or the harbor structures. Because these structures are sometimes very hard, and even if you want to preserve them, you have to bring in other features. 
And a little bit different than other places, we did not create, so to say, a green waterfront in front of the blue waterfront, but we entered, so to say, structural elements linking inner city green spaces with the blue waterfront, which is, so to say, in the back. That is just a park which was opened, which is a linear structure, uh, 100 meters wide, but 600 meters long. So that is dividing up and producing a, a different uh, living atmosphere. But we also enter, so to say, the water. The long linear structures of the harbor basins are really broken, uh, at least in terms of some of the key walls, by building peninsulas. So that will be a green peninsula to be opened next year, and it will be simply a playground, a meeting point. It will even have a major hill, that probably the highest hill in the middle of the water, at least in the river, and you see the infrastructure building that is uh, on the lower part. It is a subway construction which will be finalized in the near future. So it is also changing the relationship between water and land in order to make this a livable space. And this is an architectural drawing from the year 2010. But nevertheless, the key issue in Hamburg with this development is actually keeping the relationship between an active, very active operating port and, so to say, uh, urbanized area. And you see on the one hand side, naturally a major ship passing by and you see uh, from the lower picture the perspective towards the port itself, but you see also the integrative aspects of what we call not only waterfront development, but a new downtown development, where residential development, uh, working spaces, 45,000, residents between 14 and 15,000, many students, university students, and a, quite a number of visitors will really generate lively spaces. But it also means a very fine-grained structure, and I think Hafen City is one of the examples, one of the few examples where we actually do not cluster spatial development, so to say bring offices in one place or residential uses, but bring them really together. This is a headquarter of a company and actually this is a residential tower. They were asked to build that together on one side that will continue on the left and on the right hand side in the same way. So when we are looking now at living at the waterfront, aside from these specifics, you can see that we generate public promenades when it is a sunny day in Hamburg, and it, there are sunny days in Hamburg. There is, you see a lot of people walking around, so we create in this area a lot of walkability, public spaces which are interconnected, generating a network, but you also see the new topography here, generated here, from the raising of the land. So there are new public spaces in buildings joined together and you have floating platforms. So at the end of the day, this city area is working at three different levels, which you can also he see here. 
this is a 6,000 square meter platform where you bring actually old ships into the harbor area and due to tidal differences you cannot use the keywords but have to come up with different solutions. But nevertheless you also see that we use a lot of old port elements to have a livability in terms of identification with port structures and port infrastructures, but it is also a matter of gray energy use to use these old elements. Gray energy and probably a very specific idea was, so to say, responsible for coming up with this idea. That building has just been opened. The concerts will start on the 11th of January. It is a building 110 meters high. And I must say, we didn't plan for it. It came by accident. A private developer came up with the idea, and the, no one, so to say, uh, from the private development community could really deal with all the issues which came up. So at the end of the day, the city took the project over, and it is now a concert hall. And you see here is a structural um, uh, picture with 250 seats. It has here a five-star hotel. It has here residential units. It has still another concert hall with 600 seats. And it has parking, a lot of rehearsal rooms, and so on. And this is the old part of the storage building, 50 years old. And this concert hall was built on this old storage hall. So it's not red brick, so to say, a simulacrum. It is joining together the old and the new and gives this place a cultural imprint at the design by Herzog de Moran, Pritzker Prize winners. And it was, so to say, had got enthusiastic reviews in the last two weeks when basically architectural critics visited the place um, from Roman Hollenstein, who is from Neue Zürcher Zeitung. I, I didn't take a, a German one. The Elbphilharmonie is the first outstanding building in the new millennium he was talking about all over the world. So that is a very interesting idea, but the city is paying for it also the next 50 years at least. Yeah. <laughs> So there are a lot of ideas which are cheaper. This one is definitely an International Maritime Museum because we keep only six buildings. So living at this location also means very much creating and preserving identity. But also the area was an old railroad yard and this is now a cultural quarter where we change gradually and um, now uh, almost 30 different firms of different uh, creative background have been entering those spaces. So you see the range and the diversity which is created and part of the diversity strategy you might have heard from Jane Jacobs which is actually so, so important for new cities. And what is actually developed then when we are talking about waterfronts, it is three kilometers in just opposite the central city from the Elbphilharmonie on the left-hand side to high-rise towers, 150 or 200 meters, on which we are working. And most is either finished or is under construction. You see here, living at the waterfront means either living in six or seven-story buildings, um, 
15 to 20,000 uh, square meters or vertical towers, for example, which cannot be seen from the inner city so that you see the churches and the spikiness of the uh, city hall and other buildings from the inner city lake. So it is a traditional vista from the inner city is preserved while it creates a completely new one living at the waterfront of the Elbe River. And it is designed, it is composed, it will probably not change after it is finished for the next hundred years. So that's very interesting because that will definitely, so to say, also fix spaces in the city, which is very unique in terms of what is the quality of the city developed and therefore we take a lot of pride and effort to fix that, to come up with a lot of architectural um, involvement competitions and urban design competitions so that we think waterfront development is a development for more than 100 years and this is uh, and we try to do that also for many other buildings, including those which have, for example, here, not only community housing like here or cooperative housing, but also affordable housing, one third at the waterfront, which naturally must be cross-subsidized from the project. The more expensive some of the residential units are, uh, the better for the proportion of the affordable housing. So, that is an idea from what is going on in Hamburg. We are trying to be very ambitious. We have a lot of ecological targets. We have a lot of social targets. But I gave you an impression of what, so to say, our, our urban design ideas are. And I hope that uh, provides an incentive for you to update your knowledge of Hamburg. Thank you very much. So I think the incentive for updating your knowledge of Hamburg is an invitation to come to Hamburg. Is that right, Jürgen? Well, I made a very careful comment and I keep to my sentence. Okay, yeah? so he wants to update your knowledge of Hamburg. Thank you. Jürgen, you said so many interesting things, but the first thing that you really said was remembering that the port hasn't gone away. It's just modernized and slightly relocated. Actually, it's grown its activities, but this has provided you with this amazing strategic opportunity to redevelop a portion of the city. And then you took us through some very interesting work about adjusting to flood risk and sea level rises. You talked about the integrated uses of land. You went into a very interesting conversation about the concert hall. At the end, you veered past this interesting point of affordable housing, which I'm sure people in Auckland will want to ask you about. And you came on to talking about the next 100 years and getting it right for then. So really helpful presentation. Quick show of hands. How many people like something like the Philharmonic uh, concert hall that Jürgen showed you. If you like that, raise your hands. If that's not your thing, raise your hands. Okay, that's about 90, 85 to 15, I would say, like that kind of thing. Okay, that's really helpful. No doubt you'll have some questions for Jürgen about that. Now we're going to go to Scotland and to Scotland's biggest city, Glasgow. It's a great pleasure to introduce Richard Brown. Richard is the executive director uh, at Glasgow City Council where he's in charge of uh, development, regeneration, planning and essentially the future of the city. So Richard, welcome. The floor is yours.
Well, thank you, Greg, and thank you uh, for having me here. It's, it's absolutely great. I have to say I was pleased when so many people raised their hands in response to the Have You Been to Glasgow. It means that some of you will understand my accent. Um, <laughs> I will try to speak rather slowly, and hopefully that will help. Um, and also, it's another thanks for introducing some Glasgow weather to make me feel right at home. <laughs> so, without further ado, that's, this is Glasgow. Uh, some of you who have been there will recognise it, and this is some of the key assets of the city. It's often said that Glasgow made the Clyde, and the Clyde made Glasgow. And what I want to explore this evening for the next five or so minutes is the history of Glasgow and the history of Glasgow and its relationship to the River Clyde, which is our uh, waterfront in the city. So we'll start with a bit of a history lesson. Oh, I think we've got the wrong presentation here, so maybe I'll do something different. Um, this is the last presentation, so uh, how's this for um, impromptu response to awkward conversations? Let's try something different. This is Glasgow. It's the centre of the universe and centre of the world, as you can see uh, from this map. There's a bit about Glasgow. Um, it, it shows that we are a city, a, a really impressive city in the Northern Hemisphere. Uh, we have about 1.8 million people in our city region with a growing economy, um, international airport, uh, retail centre, um, and we have... Um, as you can see from the map, how far we are from London. So effectively, we are um, a growing uh, city, region economy. And for the first time in many years, we're looking at our waterfront uh, all over again. And there's a picture of Glasgow. And despite what I said earlier about the weather, you can see that it's actually a very sunny place. Um, it's a beautiful city, but it is gathered uh, around the River Clyde. And um, it's, it, I suppose it's, it, this is a good slide because it shows exactly what we're looking at in terms of reinventing the River Clyde. Um, the, the Clyde was the reason that Glasgow became a city. Back in the 6th century, St Mungo, uh, who's the patron saint of Glasgow, established a, a church on the uh, site of uh, the River Clyde as it met the Mall and Diner Burn, um, which is, let me just see if I can do this. Oops. Just a, we're having technical difficulties as well. So this area just about here, which is the old traditional uh, high street. In the 11th century, Glasgow became a barony and established the University of Glasgow in 1451. It's the fourth oldest English-speaking university in the world. And that's incredibly important because at that point, people lived by the river. They lived at the, by, by the River Clyde because it was a, a settlement. It was about education, about religion. It was about people moving into those areas. But along came the Industrial Revolution, and following the Act of Union in 1707, uh, Glasgow became a seaport. It became a port where uh, it imported tobacco from, uh, from across the globe. Over half of the tobacco coming into uh, the United Kingdom at the time uh, was coming through the River Clyde. And it was a, a great exporter of goods and uh, a shipbuilding uh, centre of excellence in the world. It became, during the Industrial Revolution, the fifth largest shipbuilding city uh, in the world. And we celebrated that for many, many years. But of course, along with the shipbuilding and uh, the, the move of uh, the Industrial Revolution into more modern technologies, Glasgow suffered greatly from deindustrialization. And the city of Glasgow, in a sense, turned its back on its, its waterfront. 
Um, and that's one of the things that we've been dealing with as a city for many years, this, this process of deindustrialization, contamination, people not wanting to engage with the river because it was a, it, it was a loss, the, the shipbuilding industry, the import-export business uh, was, was something that, that Glasgow and Glaswegians uh, mourned. And working with partners, the council has led the way in terms of regenerating uh, the River Clyde. And, and, and attracting people back into the heart of the city. And what this slide shows you is a number of development sites now right along the River Clyde in some of the old shipyard basins uh, and some of the, the post-industrial sites in the east end uh, of the city. And we'll move on to that. So here are some pictures of, of uh, a site in the east end of the city, some 150 hectares of land. Um, this was a site that was uh, a former um, Steelworks, Sir William Arrow and Co. It produced some of the, the biggest bridges and most well-known bridges, including the fourth rail bridge uh, in Scotland, and also London Tower Bridge, and many bridges across uh, the world. But in, again, along with industrial decline, um, this, the, the plant closed in, in the 1980s, um, and what we saw from that was post-industrial decline in the area, and yet what we had was a site that was right on the riverfront. And what we did was we worked with communities to re-engage with them and re-engage with the, the River Clyde. But the catalyst for this was the 2014 Commonwealth Games. And I'm sure that all of you in the audience will know what the Commonwealth Games are. This became the site of the Athletes Village for the Commonwealth Games. And we used that opportunity to, instead of just building an Athletes Village um, for the athletes to come along, we actually built an affordable mixed-use housing development uh, with photovoltaic panels, with combined heat and power plant, and we turned the athletes' village round from facing away from the Clyde to back to recognising the River Clyde and its importance uh, to the city of Glasgow. And as I say, if you look at the top right-hand picture, you can see some of the old housing that had gone into decline. People didn't want to live there. The population had fallen from about 30,000 to uh, maybe 5,000 people in the, in the wider community. And working with partners, working with the government, Scottish government, development agencies, we were able to come up with a, a plan, which was to build these 700 houses uh, for the citizens of Glasgow, for the people of Dermanach, and we loaned them to the athletes for the Commonwealth Games. Um, and they were hugely successful. The feedback from the athletes was great. Uh, they enjoyed staying there. They enjoyed being in the city because it was a different experience. But most importantly, what we were left with what, at the end of it was the wonderful housing that you can see uh, to the, the, the bottom right-hand slide, the, the three slides uh, down there, and again, how that development now interacts with the Clyde. So this was a, a key milestone for us in terms of regeneration of the Clyde, because what it did was, out with city centre living, and you, know, you obviously see city centre living uh, connected to the river, we actually introduced this in some of the most deprived communities of the city. And the, uh, we link this back as well to health. There's a, there's a real health problem in the city of Glasgow with some of the worst deprivation and health statistics uh, around. But what this managed to do was to connect people back to the river, introduce healthier lifestyles, and we continue to develop out this part of uh, the city of Glasgow. This is another site that maybe talk about just for a second, which is the, uh, the site of the old uh, shipyards that, that I mentioned earlier on. Uh, Glasgow has a great tradition of, of shipbuilding, and I think um, if at one point if you used the phrase Clyde built, that was a sign of real quality in shipbuilding. Uh, we exported goods, imported goods, built ships. Um, but obviously, as the shipyards declined, we had to look at new ways of reinventing and reusing and living 
by the waterfront. And the way in which we approached this was again a catalytic event, which was the, Garden Glasgow, the Glasgow Garden Festival back in 1988, when what we did was we used the former docks that had been infilled, and we used them for a purpose that people could re-engage with the River Clyde, that they could look at how they could live there, work there, and play there. And that was the, the real catalyst for change. Um, and in the 1980s, what we created was the Scottish Exhibition and Conference Centre right on this site. And, and that's expanded since the mid-80s. Um, it's the number one convention, uh, Glasgow's the number one convention city in the United Kingdom. It's in the top five in Europe for its size. Um, and that's been a huge success for driving people to the river, both to live, but also uh, to work and to visit the city. And that's driven demand and economic growth, and we'll be able to capture that uh, quite significantly. Um, and then in time for the, the Commonwealth Games back in 2014, in late 2013, we opened up the big building that you can see, which is the SSE uh, Hydro Building, which is now in the top three um, concert, music concert venues in the world. Number one, if you look at the at billboard um, in terms of music venues, it's been visited by all of the top artists in the world. And again, what it's doing is it's driving people and business and opportunity back into the River Clyde, and people are starting to re-engage with the River Clyde. Um, and that's been a huge success. So our living by the water in, in Glasgow has been a journey from uh, way back when Glasgow was established to people living on the Clyde to becoming a very industrialised city where people turned their back in the Clyde and moved away from the River Clyde back into the heart of the city centre. And then now recognising that living by the water comes in many forms uh, and, and in many different ways and uh, reusing the Clyde and recognising the Clyde and the Clyde being the catalyst uh, for that absolute change. So our waterfront vision, we want to reconnect it, vibrant communities. I'm really impressed by what's, what I've seen so far in, in Auckland and how you, you, the Wynyard development is reconnecting families and people back into the waterfront. We're looking to do exactly the same. And these are, actual, these are photos, not Photoshop things, but these are photos of people actually engaging with the Clyde. So it's actually happening. We're getting people back in to, to, to re-engage with the Clyde and use the Clyde uh, more frequently. And I'll leave you with that slide. That's a picture of Glasgow where the sun always shines. And you can see how we have managed to reintegrate the River Clyde into the historic uh, quarter of the city. And the tower you see here is Glasgow University. So we've managed to get academia, we've got partners across the city from academia, from the business community, from the public sector, all working together to reinvent the, set, the city so that we can have more people living by the water. Thank you. Richard, not only was that a tour de force, but you did it with, a, with the slides you weren't expecting to have. So that's absolutely amazing. Um, but you did tell us about the history of the city, its relationship with the Clyde River, St Mungo's founding acts, the seminary, the university, the way the port evolved, how the port led to shipbuilding, how shipbuilding supported industrialization, how deindustrialization crippled the city, how the people turned their back on the city, on the, on the river, and then how you've encouraged them to re-engage with it. Uh, you said a lot of interesting things, but one of the things you talked about was live venues on the waterfront, conference centres, live entertainment venues. You've also got sports stadium near the waterfront, haven't you? So, um, people of Auckland, how many of you are interested in live sports venues near your waterfront? Let's see if you are. Who's not? Who's afraid to vote? Okay, so, okay, right, <laughs> very good. So uh, that's about 85 to 90% against live sports. What about live music venues on the waterfront? Who likes them? Let's have a look, okay, who doesn't like them? 
Okay, that's a oh, that's 90 to 10 like against dislike. And what about conference centres and convention centres? Do you like those? Let's see. Yes. No. Who doesn't like them? There's a lot of non-voters here. It's about the, like the American election. Um, but uh, I would say that that was, uh, say, 35% yes to convention centres, 65% no. That's very interesting. Okay, thank you. Thank you so much, Richard. And thank you for dealing with the wrong slides there. Um, we're now going to New York City. And it's a great pleasure to welcome Carl Weisbrod. Uh, Carl is the chairman of the New York City Planning Commission, and he's also the director uh, of the New York City Department of Planning, uh, somebody I've personally known for, for many years. He's held many leadership roles in New York City. Please welcome Carl Weisbrod. Uh, thank you very much, Greg, and like my fellow colleagues, I am uh, thrilled uh, to be in uh, Auckland. Uh, it's the first time I've been here, and I'm so impressed with the city, and particularly this magnificent waterfront and this magnificent harbor. I must say I share the audience's sentiments against uh, sports venues on the waterfront, but um, you'll be hearing more about that in a, uh, a minute. Um, I'd like to start... Um, Hoping, whoops, I'd like to start by talking a little bit about the origins of New York um, because uh, our origins are really uh, dependent on the water. And as many of you who have been to New York know, we are one of the original 13 colonies that made up the original 13 states of the United States, and we were the only colony that was not founded on religious principles. We were founded on economic principles and economic opportunity and trade. And what made New York New York, what made New York um, the city, uh, the preeminent city in the United States was the water. And it was because uh, visionaries had the, uh, the vision to build the Erie Canal in the uh, early part of the 19th century, which opened up the entire middle of the country to trade and made New York into the preeminent um, uh, industrial manufacturing and trade city um, in the United States. Um, and today, New York remains the largest by far city in the country. It has 8.55 million people. We're at our all-time high. 40% uh, of our population was not born in the United States. 50% of our population speaks a language other than English at home. Many of them speak Scottish. Richard, you'll be happy to know. Um, I was very surprised to see more people had been to um, Glasgow than had been to New York, so uh, despite the language barrier. So I was extremely... <laughs> sobering experience for me. Um, and, and actually our city is growing uh, enormously and very, very quickly, even as we are at an all-time high. Um, we have absorbed 375,000 new people in New York uh, just in the last five years. And that's the equivalent of absorbing the city of Christ Church in, in a five-year period. And our growth is expected uh, to continue. Um, so the evolution of the city's waterfront um, this is, we were an industrial city, we were a trade city, and that's the lower part of, that's the waterfront of Lower Manhattan in the 1930s. 
the peers still a major factor. Um, this is um, the way that we treated our waterfront in the 1940s, even into the 1980s and 1990s. They were either blocked off because of uh, highways and, uh, uh, and, and industrial uses, not available to the general public, or totally abandoned uh, altogether. Um, and it was really only in the, in the, starting in the 1970s and 1980s, and we really learned, 1980s and 1990s, we really learned, I have to say, from London and what London did with its waterfront, the potential that the waterfront uh, offered. I should go back one slide and just say, although it's not in, this, in these photos, that the waterfront was so discounted in New York for most of our history that we would put our social housing on the waterfront because that was the place where no one could see it. No one would go there. And to this day, most of our public housing, our social housing, is literally on the waterfront in all five boroughs. But uh, after learning from London, um, we really began to realize the potential of our waterfront. To some extent, it was realized before that. I point you to the, uh, to, to the photo in the upper left-hand corner because that, I think, the photo of Riverside Park on the west side of Manhattan is an indication of the schizophrenia with which we dealt with our waterfront. Uh, Jürgen talked about Jane Jacobs, and of course Jane Jacobs' uh, uh, adversary was uh, Robert Moses, and the, the planner who um, both created Riverside Park, one of the premier waterfront parks in the city, and the highway, the West Side Highway, that prevented people from going to Riverside Park. Um, and that was the dilemma of Robert Moses. In many ways, he was a great planner, and in many ways, he was very destructive uh, of the city. But uh, I think this photo montage gives you a sense of the variety of uses that exist uh, on our waterfront. Um, our waterfront is, uh, uh, has a scale and diversity that is really remarkable. Um, it probably doesn't, it certainly doesn't match the, uh, the linear uh, mileage of Auckland's waterfront at all, but we have 530 miles of waterfront that include oceans and rivers and estuaries and bays and, um, and a diversity of development. But really starting in the 1980s, we began to realize that public access to our waterfront was crucial. And um, we started requiring it not only of public projects, but of private projects. In 1992, the city created a, uh, a comprehensive waterfront uh, plan, um, and that was really drove our waterfront planning and still does. Public access to our waterfront is not only required when the public develops the waterfront, but public access to our waterfront is also required when any private developer develops the waterfront. Every private developer that develops the waterfront is required to come in with a, a waterfront access plan, and it is required for that developer to both build the uh, waterfront access and waterfront ac public access, and to maintain that access over time forever. So either that developer will 
maintain it directly or pay the city to maintain it if uh, he, it turns it over to the city as a public park. And with respect to residential development, this is often a real challenge because residential development on our waterfront for a very long time was seen as privatization of our waterfront, that the residents would object if, uh, if the public was able to access the waterfront right outside their window. But we changed that policy, and as you can see, the, uh, I guess their orange dots represent uh, publicly access, wa accessible waterfront. These are all separate private projects um, under private ownership. All of them require public access and require the private development uh, to maintain it. And obviously we have a huge amount of, uh, of uh, uh, publicly owned space as well, and that is uh, growing. Um, so our residential development now on the waterfront is um, uh, increasing in leaps and bounds. Um, this is largely because New York was the nation's premier industrial city and manufacturing city. But over time, at the end of World War II, we had a million manufacturing jobs, many of them on the waterfront. Now we have 70,000 manufacturing jobs in New York City. We were, at the end of World War II, had more manufacturing jobs than any of the smokestack cities in the United States, including Detroit and Pittsburgh and Chicago. And now um, we, we have uh, uh, less than one-tenth of what we used to have. And that industrial space has now become available. This space along the Queens waterfront uh, had been an industrial, um, had been industrial uh, uh, use. As you can see, actually that's a Pepsi-Cola sign. The bottling plant there was actually a Coca-Cola bottling plant. And Pepsi very wisely decided to put a sign there which has become iconic. And now that sign is a landmark. <laughs> um, I should say about, I should say about uh, Hunter's Point that um, uh, this is a 120,000 uh, square meter project. It will have, it's under construction now, it will have 5,000 units. 60% of these units are, will be affordable, mostly to middle income uh, families. It will include also an 1,100 seat uh, intermediate school, 45,000 square meters of recreation and open space, and a public park and promenade along the waterfront. Even when we do economic development, this is uh, the Hudson Yards project on the west side of Manhattan along the Hudson River. Um, this is being built over uh, active rail yards. It's a 28-acre site. It's the largest private development, real estate development in U.S. history. Um, but even this, as a commercial development, will have, and, and mixed-use residential development, will have uh, 56,000 square meters of public open space again, uh, along, the water, uh, along the waterfront. This development will be for front office uh, uh, commercial tenants for the most part. It's already attracting, uh, has attracted uh, CNN and HBO and Wells Fargo, and uh, probably Blackstone is going to be moving here. So uh, it is rivaling, literally, New York's premier business districts like uh, um, Fifth Avenue and Park Avenue and Madison Avenue. We're also engaged in uh, ecological conservation. 
That's very important. This is Jamaica Bay, uh, preserving our and beautifying our waterfront, but also bringing water quality uh, up to uh, standards um, uh, is a very important goal for us. Um, New York's rivers are estuaries, which means really that they are a mix of salt and fresh water um, between the Atlantic and uh, uh, um, uh, upper uh, New York State. Um, and this supports really an abundance and, uh, of, uh, of wildlife and, and many, many diverse species. And in many ways, these areas are like the city itself. They support diversity and they're, and, and, um, they're a mix of the kind of diversity that, uh, that the city prides itself on and actively uh, working on conservation now in the city to restore our wetlands and filter water um, uh, uh, and mitigate storm surge. Um, we have started a billion oyster project uh, here. Um, I have to confess the oysters are not yet as uh, delectable as the oysters I've had here. Um, they have a long way to go, I suspect, but we're on our way. Um, um, in terms of open space and recreation, this is Hudson River Park. This is along this stretch of the west side of Manhattan. Used to be finger piers mostly for uh, luxury liners. This has been developed as a park and it is funded in a very innovative way. Um, we have originally, all of our major parks, we expect to be self-sustaining in terms of their funding. Um, and this park was, the goal was to preserve several piers, use them for economic development and have them throw off enough money to maintain this park, which is quite beautiful. The local neighborhood has objected for 30 years now to any development along the piers that was supposed to, on the piers that was supposed to actually generate that economic um, development and, and, and resources to sustain and maintain this beautiful park. So we've come up with a different strategy entirely, which is to allow the park to sell its development rights from the park to the upland get the money for the development rights and use them as an endowment for the park. All done through the public process that has recently gone through the Planning Commission and is now uh, actively before the City Council. Another example of, uh, of use of open space and recreation is Governor's Island. This is a really a unique resource in the middle of New York Harbor. You see iconic uh, Lower Manhattan on the left, these are uh, Brooklyn Piers and Brooklyn Bridge Park on the right. Um, Governor's Island was given to the city of New York uh, by the federal government. It used to house the Coast Guard and many of the buildings on Governor's Island are historic and this is a part of Governor's Island. The part in the background is uh, 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 landmarked. Um, the restriction from the national government when it granted this to New York City was that no housing would be allowed to be built here. Um, consequently, this is a park that is really challenged to, to maintain itself. And so it has become an enormous public resource for, uh, for residents and visitors to New York. And in fact, this is a venue for concerts uh, during the summer and spring months. But those concerts are insufficient to support the park. And so now we're looking at 
the non-landmarked non area as uh, a center for creative businesses and uh, IT firms and uh, perhaps uh, um, a major university. And finally, I have to say a word about, um, about climate change. It's something that affects all of us and as Jürgen mentioned, with respect to Hamburg and I think all of us have to deal with this. This is the destruction caused by Hurricane Sandy uh, four years ago, which also resulted in uh, uh, close to 50 deaths and the realization for the city of New York that, uh, uh, that uh, our climate was changing, our sea level was rising, and we couldn't simply ignore that. Um, Sandy caused $19 billion in property damages. Um, we project that our sea level will rise between uh, about 11 inches and 21 inches by mid-century. That's increasingly becoming a very conservative estimate and we'll probably have to uh, raise that. Um, um, we expect that by mid-century we'll see 800,000 New Yorkers living in the 100-year floodplain, uh, 300,000 jobs in that floodplain, and more than 100,000 buildings in that floodplain. So we have adopted a number of different strategies to deal with that, uh, including on uh, Staten Island. Um, if I can get this. Down along the east shore of Staten Island, uh, where we are buying back a private property and turning that property uh, back to nature. Uh, we are reducing density in certain other areas along uh, the Queens and Brooklyn waterfronts and along our very densely populated and job centers on, on the, uh, along Manhattan. We are, uh, we are strengthening our coastal protection. Um, we have decided in those areas that we will not retreat from the waterfront. Um, we have created or are creating something called the Big U, which will run from the west side of Lower Manhattan around to the east side that will consist of uh, both um, uh, storm surge barriers, uh, increasing uh, hills and, uh, and in parks, um, and the like, and that is a, a, a major investment on the part of the city. So um, we know that this is going to be the existential challenge of our time. Um, water was certainly our destiny uh, and made New York what it, what it is, and uh, for too long we turned our back on it, uh, but we have rediscovered it, and we are uh, mining its potential now. Uh, I will say one other thing about, about our residential development on the waterfront, which is that um, we are now committed as a city, given the affordable housing crisis that we face, that any time we rezone an area where we increase residential capacity for an area, and that includes any time we take industrial property and transform it into residential property, that at least 25 or 30 percent of the housing that gets built there uh, must be affordable and must be affordable forever. Um, uh, we do that also when we are simply even in a residential area where we are increasing uh, density and allowing for more housing 
Uh, it is the most rigorous mandatory housing program in the United States. Um, and uh, we expect that the cross subsidies that that, that, the, that mandatory program will provide uh, will make somewhat, somewhat of a dent in what is uh, uh, probably the most uh, serious uh, challenge we face, which is how do we house our citizens. So with that, thank you very much and look forward to Carl, thank you so much. I think everybody in the room has been hugely stimulated by that, and particularly the last part of your discussion, which really began to identify and characterize what is New York City's strategy for climate change resilience? How are you going to deal with sea levels rising? Uh, where are you going to retreat from the waterfront? Where are you going to strengthen the defenses? Where are you going to build more carefully? And what mix of things you're going to put in place? And probably your city more than any other has really thought about that because of Sandy uh, and, and the other things that have followed from it. Let's invite our other guests to come up and take a seat now and the great news is that because they've been so frugal with the time we have plenty of times for the conversation and this is the Auckland conversation so we really like that the way we'd like to do this is this I'd, I'd like to take three or four points from the room have our panel comment on one or two of them each take another three or four do it again do it again as many times as we can until the time comes at about 715 uh, when I'll introduce our closing speaker so um, to get the ball rolling, let me show you uh, how to do this. So I have a question, which is, um, tell us what the real mechanisms are for achieving affordable housing on your waterfront. How do you really make, a housing, make the housing affordable? So there's a question. Let's have three or four more from you. If you raise your hands, thank you. I think a microphone's, are the microphones gonna come around? It's okay, so you have to keep your hand up, then it comes, have we just got the one mic? Where's the other one? Okay, so if you could bring the other mic to this gentleman, and if this lady could have the microphone here, that would be great. Okay. So, over to you. Keep talking. Hello? Oh, sorry. The question was for, um, regarding the parks, um, how the New York gentleman was discussing how they're um, self-sufficient in the funding. Yep. I was wondering how the cities of Copenhagen, Glasgow, and Scotland fund their public spaces if they okay. require citizens or private sector or how they do that. Yeah, and can we also generalize the question and say what do you think is the best way to finance public spaces? Is that okay yes, to put it you. that way as well? Okay, so we want to know more about that. Yes, sir. Hello, uh, my name is Mark Graham. I have a question for uh, Richard and for Jürgen. And it regards the, uh, the uh, uh, Alps Philharmonic uh, Concert Hall and the conference center that was built. So in, in, uh, in the first instance, Jürgen mentioned that uh, the city was going to be paying for it for a long time. And I wonder whether uh, the city regrets having to be paying for it. And the second thing is to both of you, is uh, how central do you see those developments being to the success of the waterfront? And uh, perhaps the final thing is, what perhaps could we do here around that? Okay, very clear, very clear. Does, does Hamburg regret paying for the, the, the Philharmonic uh, Concert Hall? 
You said it's going to pay for it for a long time. Does the city regret? Don't answer yet. Just think about it. And then, and then, uh, how do you use those those kinds of developments to spur the waterfront? And any views about what Auckland should do? Okay, let's take a couple more if we can. Who else? Yes, sir. Keep your hand up. And the microphone will come to you. And there's the gentleman there as well. Good. Where's the microphone on this side of the room? Okay, have you got it, sir? Hello. Hi, off you go. Yeah. Yep. Hi, um, you've, a number of you have talked about how crucial access to the waterfront is. Are you aware of and do you have a, an opinion on building transport infrastructure along the waterfront? Um, we're looking at the east-west link at the moment, which will be on the northern side of Manukau Harbour. And is that road or rail? Uh, it's road, it's potentially a motorway in scale. Yeah. Okay, let me just get a sense of the room. How many of you like the idea of the east-west link then along the waterfront as just described by this gentleman? If you do, raise your hands. If you don't, raise your hands. Okay, if you're shy and timid and not telling us what you really think, raise your hands. Okay, there's a few of them. Good. Okay, thank you. Yes, who was the gentleman over here? Did you, did you get the microphone? No. That was your question too. Okay, let's deal with these panel if we may. So there's a question about what are the real mechanisms for achieving affordable housing? How do you, you know, how are parks financed and public spaces financed in your city? What, what makes them uh, affordable and sustainable? What about the role of concert halls and convention centers? Jürgen and, and um, Richard, if you could pick that up. And then, is it important to have transport on the waterfront? If so, what kind? So pick up two points each. And uh, Rita, would you like to begin? Yeah. By uh, the way, this is Richard's weather that he brought <laughs> with him from Glasgow. It's quite loud, isn't it? So, so I will start with the question uh, about uh, public spaces and how to finance or fund public spaces. Traditional in Copenhagen, the municipality owned all streets and all public spaces. But as we do have uh, that much um, development, they cannot afford to do that. Uh, in what we are doing, the developments we are doing. We are only doing development projects inside the border of uh, the city of Copenhagen and only areas that we have been given by the city and the state in common. And it's, uh, most of them are former industrial areas, so the economical value of those were very low. And now that we are allowed to uh, transform them into city districts. We hire the, the value and that's the way that, that we can afford uh, to finance uh, public spaces and public spaces with equality. Does that mean that you finance them through the taxes you get we, from the increased oh, value? Yeah, we, we finance them because we do not build anything ourselves. We develop the areas until we have an approved plan and then we sell the building rights. And from that money, uh, we have the money to finance the public spaces and all the recreational activities. And besides that, the big purpose is that we are going to finance all metro in, in, in Copenhagen. That's what we use most of the money. And is it a lease system that you're no, selling? No, it's not you're a lease. You're selling freehold rights. Yeah. It's yeah. Great, okay, so they own all of the land 
uh, and uh, they sell it. They sell the development rights, and that gives them the money to finance the public space. Yes. Do you want to pick up another point, Rita? What about affordable housing in yeah, Copenhagen? Uh, affordable housing. I think it's the same thing in Copenhagen as in many cities. The prices are going up. And the only way that prices of uh, housing in general that you can keep uh, keep them down is that you have enough uh, residential projects. So um, that means that you have to build enough so that you do not have this huge demand on housing. And in Denmark, we do not have that thing affordable housing. We have as we have social housing. It just means that it's uh, special associations that are allowed to build them and they have to build them, uh, keep to a special frame. Mm. They are cheaper than private uh, built uh, uh, housing, but they aren't cheap. Mm. So I do not have the right answer to that. So they're a bit more affordable, but not really affordable. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Got the idea. Um, Carl, will you pick up now and maybe start with transport and pick up something else then that you'd like to discuss? Yeah, let me, I'd like to make a sort of a, a, a general point, which is that we're talking about issues like affordability and public access to the waterfront and con concert halls and the like. These are good things in and of themselves, but I think the important thing to also remember is that they have a double benefit. The increasingly Talent, these are in public investments that attract and retain talent in a city. And, and business increasingly, business almost entirely now, is going where the talent is. Talent is not going where the business is. So these investments are not just public goods in a general sense, but are all in a value sense, but they're also good economic investments because they are the kinds of investments that attract people to stay, of talent to come to a city and stay in a city. Let me talk just briefly about uh, uh, some of these issues. Transport and the waterfront. New York City has a, essentially its public transport, which is very dense, is a, is a hub and spoke system. Everything leads into Manhattan because historically that's where the jobs were. And now we're finding most of our jobs, we're growing jobs at a faster rate outside of Manhattan than we're growing it into Manhattan, and our public transportation system is not built for that. So we have now implemented actually a five-borough citywide ferry system that is actually going to be formally and fully in operation next year. It will be subsidized by the city of New York because it's not financially uh, doable uh, on an unsubsidized basis, but that is for us crucial, and I, I'm not quite sure what the east-west connector is, but we're undergoing our own debate right now called the BQX, which is a fast line that uh, would go uh, uh, essentially a, a, a surface rail line that would go from along the Queens and Brooklyn waterfront. It is highly controversial. I don't know if it'll happen, um, but it's again another effort to not only link the waterfront, but a link boroughs that are increasingly now uh, dependent on each other more than they're dependent on Manhattan. And I'll just say a word about affordable housing. Just mandatory, just getting developers to 
uh, requiring them to produce a certain amount of affordable housing in order to build market rate housing is, in our view, a good idea with, uh, with, with housing prices rising. Um, I don't believe that um, uh, the laws of supply and demand really work anymore with respect to affordable housing. Obviously, the greater the supply, the better we are. But unless we can actually produce and subsidize affordable housing, I don't think we're going to be able to address this problem. So New York City now is spending $8 billion over the next 10 years simply to subsidize affordable housing because we think it's that important. Great, Carl. Thank you very much. I just want to pick up. Mm -hmm. Feel free to applaud, and you'll hear an interesting story from Jürgen in a minute about affordable housing in Hamburg, I think. But just to pick up on your very first observation, you're saying that these kind of waterfront amenities are not just a kind of cost-benefit analysis of do you get back more in revenues than they cost you, but actually it's about a new kind of urban livability, which you have to have if you want to attract and retain a talent pool. That's the point you're making. Yes. Right. Okay, Richard, can we come to you then? Can you pick up firstly on the question asked about Congress centers, convention centers, live entertainment, and then pick up another point? Yeah, I, I think in, in terms of the conference center, it was a, a big change for Glasgow. We brought a conference center into the city in, in the uh, mid-1980s, and we started to go out and attract business conferences. It was an area we had never been in before, and you know, the, because of the ground conditions, we, we, we did it because of ground conditions. The docks had been infilled by you know, tenement buildings, so they weren't fit for uh, certain types of development. So you could put a big, it's basically a big industrial shed. It was cheap to put up, but it gave us the opportunity to diversify the type of uh, economy that Glasgow had, this kind of a moving uh, feast. And it added something to the city that we didn't have before. And it's been a huge success for us because not only did it get us um, additional co or get us conference business and get us into that area, but it started to put Glasgow on the map as being a place where events took place and that's evolved over a period of time and I should have said that in terms of the hydro the music venue the specially built music venue which is about uh, 13,000 seats um, that was paid for partly by the city as well that was an investment decision that the city took and it was to grow from that because what we were finding was that the conference space was in huge demand and then we were maybe trying to attract some music uh, artists into the city and there was competing demands and we were actually started to cancel out each other, uh, the business of both sides of the of that business um, and by investing in that we've managed to grow the conference capacity in the city and grow the conference business and at the same time attract international music stars who you know, are very very uh, selective about the venues that they play in so it was designed by uh, by Foster's architects, internationally renowned uh, architectural practice. It was done on the basis that uh, it was it, it was there for acoustics and making sure it was the best sound and the way it was designed around the stage and flexibility of getting artists, because the, the, these international artists like to come, set up in a day, have the concert, de-rig that night and go to the next venue. So all of that was taken into account and that makes it such a, a commercially successful venue and I think going back to Carol's point you know what it's done for the city is again put us on that international map it drives visitor tourism but also the citizens of Glasgow really take full advantage of it they've got memberships of the hydro they, they tend to every concert tends to be um, very full full to capacity no matter who that artist is and it adds to that quality of life within the city 
Um, and we find that too, that, this, that, you know, that businesses are now attracted to where the talent is, rather than the other way about. And we've even seen some uh, strange things happening, that businesses who are maybe located about 10 miles from the city centre can't get staff. So what's happening is they're coming to the city centre because the staff don't want to leave the city centre because they really enjoy this, you know, the nightlife scene. You know, and a Friday night in Glasgow, for instance, about 100,000 people come into the city centre because of the range of pubs, clubs and entertainment venues that we have. So it really is about that quality of life and, and the vibe around the city. Yeah, the, yeah those, the, the, the venue, the particular uh, hydro, added another layer to that because now it was about concert goers, it was about the live music and it was all part of that e e ecology, the, the ecosystem that existed around the kind of a nightlife uh, around the city. We're going to come on to Jürgen in a minute, let's just Richard finish. So, yeah, we're coming to that. So, Another point. So, so just in that, it, it was a great investment for, for for the city of Glasgow. It's been really transformative. It was something different on the waterfront. At the time, Glaswegians had turned their back on the waterfront, and this reinvigorated that sense of the River Clyde being important uh, to the city. And that's been a journey that we've been on since uh, since the mid 80s. I think uh, there was a question about, I suppose, about parks. Parks um, and open public yeah, space. Par parks and open uh, public space. Maybe pick up on that. In Glasgow, there's, there's over 90 formal parks in the city. It's known as the Deer Green Place, amongst many other things it's known as, but it's called the, the Deer Green Place. And we invest a lot in our parks. You, you know, it is publicly funded. We're looking at new ways of doing it, you know, community trusts and working with partners and potentially sponsorship of some of these parks. But in the main, the parks were gifted to the city of Glasgow by benefactors many years ago. So there's, a, there's an obligation on us to maintain that. And in terms of developers, our planning process is designed that developers have to contribute towards the public realm and open spaces. So um, as, as part of our planning and development and our new city plan, which will hopefully be developed next year, uh, we're very much focused on placemaking and we put that responsibility on developers as well as some public funding uh, and leverage funding to make sure that we continue to develop as, as buildings and communities and new regeneration projects develop that we build open space into the heart of it. It's about connectivity, it's about making sure the transport links don't kill regeneration but they complement regeneration. So all of that is part of the ecosystem we're trying to develop. And what we're finding actually is that rather than developers being adverse to that, Developers buy into it because what it's doing is actually driving their profits up because they're seeing more demand for better quality design-led development than they were before. So it's a mixture of public funding, private funding, uh, and it, it's a constant pressure for us, but it's really worthwhile because it creates that livable, good-feel uh, city, if you like. Great. Thank you, Richard. So, Jürgen, now the question. Does Hamburg regret having the concert hall? And also, can you say a little bit about uh, affordable housing and anything else you want to say? Mm. I think I find the question difficult in terms of, so to say, population voting on this question, because yeah. we know all that votes can have very unexpected outcomes. Yeah. And, um, <laughs> and, um, I would be reluctant saying that with regard to Hamburg because we thought, so to say, we would participate in the next uh, Summer Olympics yeah. and we lost the vote by 52% to 48, which yeah. actually no one ex uh, expected. So um, while explaining a little bit of the background, I think uh, still that Elbphilharmonie is very much accepted and that has, so to say, macro-political and financial uh, reasons, but also um, 
nano-political aspects to it. The first one is that in the last five years or six years in Hamburg, tax income has been increasing very much. So the disposable tax income from the city, because it is not only a city but it's a state, has been growing significantly. Mm. The second point is there was a political management strategy uh, related to the shift in terms of local government from conservative to labor, basically. Mm. that implied uh, strengthening of social welfare components, uh, social housing and mm. affordable housing to a very significant degree. So one third of our housing is financed as affordable housing now, and it has basically tripled in terms of amount of the housing in comparison to before the Social Democrats started. So that is felt, although there is a demand for housing still very strong, that there is a lot of um, effective effort. And the same things have happened, for example, in childcare and other aspects. Yes. So the feeling of the population is that there is no crowding out effect, I might say, mm. from this major investment and that it is subjectively felt that you have to pay almost 800 million euro so you from the city budget. Mm. So that's one part of the mm. answer. And the second part is, and I think that's more a learning experience, because Alp Philharmonie has been all the time also a very much a public project. Mm. So there has been a program now for four or five years uh, where the music uh, activities have very much increased in the city for young people, for students, and so on. The second point is there has been a commitment by the city basically to subsidize part of the seating so that the citizens actually do not pay via, uh, via uh, so to say, horrendous entry prices. So mm. part of them will at least all the time have a um, low uh, fee access to it. And the third point is, it is actually a public space, mm. uh, which I didn't explain because in, the, in between, between the historical building and the new one, there is a big plaza. And this plaza is open uh, to the public. Uh, normally every day you can have only 10,000 visitors due to fire regulations, but still it is open as a public plaza. And you can see Hafen City, you can see the harbor, you can see historical storage city. It is an integrating mechanism for the city because you have a tremendous view from there and it will be a tremendous successful visitors place to basically refocus the identity of the city from the historical harbor area into a new, so to say, cultural use. And I think that has created already a lot of inspiration and positive feeling about this building. Mm. So you could have a very intelligent architectural building, but having not this public space character from mm. the building would naturally have undermined that argument. And, um, and a concert hall is in itself very much an enclosed, so to say, small venue, even if it has 2,150 seats. So you have to generate actively the public character. And yeah. I think that has 
been happening. So you've said three things, Jürgen, and I'm just going to repeat them for emphasis. One, you said it wasn't presented as a choice between a concert hall, public housing, childcare, because the city government yep. was investing in everything. Two, big efforts were made to subsidize entry so that it wasn't just an elitist project, everyone could enjoy it. And three, it created a lot of public space that everyone's enjoying. Talk to us a bit about social housing in Hamburg, if you don't mind. Well, I think the, the answer in terms of social housing is very easy. Uh, the system works um, via two mechanisms. The one is that the city has a state-owned development bank, and uh, from the city-state's budget, there is the budget is subsidized with a with a certain amount every year, and when you build uh, roughly uh, a million, uh, sorry. Um, hundreds, uh, hun a thousand uh, affordable housing units, it means roughly a hundred million euro of subsidy which is going from the city budget to the state-owned bank in order to have credit agreements and lower the interest rates. Mm. That's one mechanism. The other one is uh, based on land ownership because mm. not only the rent is kept but also the investment cost for the buildings, the size of the residential units, and that implies also the land price. So when I'm selling land, for example, in Hafen City, I achieve maybe 25% uh, of uh, very expensive, good, uh, good, uh, pri uh, good locations in Hafen City for free finance housing. Mm. So actually, I'm subsidizing on a second way, mm. so by reducing the land price. And the land price is roughly between 400 and 600 euro mm. per square meter, mm. and uh, they could naturally, uh, for um, tradable housing in another way, be significantly higher. But we do it on purpose, and I think it is an important point. I think, mm. Greg, we, are, we think that that generates a lot of encounter capacity of generating a community, and not that there is a place where in Hamburg, Hafen City is so close to the inner city that it is only a luxury environment. Mm. And we think that that will help people live together, meet the people, send their, their children to the same kindergarten, to the same schools, and that is absolutely necessary to keep the integrity of the social environment of a city mm. and not to argue for segregation. Mm. And I think that's a, a tremendous necessary benefit which actually is mm. uh, evolving from that. That's not only social housing, you have to do it in educational mm. sphere, in other areas of social services, but also you have to do that maybe in, in the long term by social community activities, integrating people. And I think you can set up a very successful program in such mm. a project to achieve those targets. Great, thank you very much, Jürgen. I would just like to add to what Jürgen said because our mandatory housing program actually uh, requires that the affordable housing be on site, integrated into mm. the market rate housing for the very reason that uh, Jürgen indicated, that that social integration, economic integration, is really important. And the social, uh, 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 social data makes it compellingly clear, at least in the United States, that uh, poor children who grow up in 
in a diverse economic environment do a lot better than poor children who grow up in a non-diverse economic mm. environment. So mixed income communities is a key sort of outcome that people are pushing for here. We're, we're nearly out of time here, and what I wanted to do was see if anybody else in the room was really waiting to ask a question, so I don't want to shut you down if you are. Okay, so you, sir, and you, sir. So what we're going to do is quick question, quick answer, just one question. Don't ask the whole panel three questions, yeah? Um, if one of you could address um, the, uh, the, the idea that uh, you, um, if, if you have uh, older parents or young children or young grandchildren, um, whether you feel comfortable um, having them use the public spaces in each of your cities or, um, and or public transport uh, facilities. Great. Rita, will you pick that question up? And then could the microphone come down here because we've got one more gentleman waiting. Great. So Rita, just pick that up straight away. So do you feel comfortable with older people and very much younger people using the public spaces in Copenhagen? And if so, what makes that work? In, in fact, I, at first I didn't understand the question because we do not have any problems on, on that in Copenhagen. And it is even so when you put benches into the public spaces, you have to do them with, with different heights. So there is uh, heights for both higher and smaller people. And, and that's the same thing with, with all the interiors you put into the public spaces. Okay, so it wouldn't even register as a problem in Copenhagen. <laughs> Hello. I just wanted to know from perhaps Jürgen and Carl, if you, um, what, did you have any issues with cooperating with the local port or the port authorities? How did that work out for you? Jürgen, relationships with the port? I think one of the issues is to, not only in terms of cooperation, but um, to legally and physically deal with it due to the fact that we are close by. Uh, we have a very sophisticated system of noise regulation with regard to make that basically compatible in terms of putting a noise cap on all the harbor related activities so when investment is coming in it must be uh, staying within the cap uh, in spite of the fact that it might be uh, in technical terms be, be louder for example uh, secondly, we uh, direct our design of the residential housing towards, in a way, that, it, that the noise from the harbor activities is reduced. We have technical solutions yet you, that you can sleep even with open windows so that a lot of the noise is absorbed in the windows and we have an agreement, for example, with the environmental agency that we can measure in the rooms and not in front of the uh, rooms. Though yeah. that helps with a lot of other issues combined, legal ones, easements, to make that actually compatible. Yeah. Second question, it is difficult. Uh, it is difficult and I'm very happy because uh, that the Port Authority is not doing urban development, uh, but the Port Authority is probably also very happy that I'm not doing port development. <laughs> nevertheless, nevertheless, uh, and I mentioned that, the starting point is naturally ports can be far more efficient and that's the tension point. They are wasting a lot of land 
because the efficiency mm. of operation is so low key, uh, so, so low. Only to give you an example, I'm now planning a vertical cruise ship terminal where a lot of activities are not spread out horizontally, but vertically integrated. I need maybe 5,000 square meters for a big ship with 3,600 packs. In the harbor, they need 10 hectares for that. So I just wonder because... So you are doing port activities? Yes. <laughs> but no one recognized that yet. Don't, don't tell me. Don't so tell the, them, right. So the issue is to come up with a productive discussion, not to infringe on the port, but to argue for a far more efficient, so to say, operation of the port, because our port is in the inner city. It's, it's an inner city port with 75 Yes. 75 square kilometer of city land. Yes. So where do we expand? Do we expand at the periphery with our housing or commercial activities uh, while the port is in a city wasting land? So that is one of the conflicts in Hamburg. Very good point, Jürgen. And uh, how many people here think that ports optimize the use of their land? If you think they do, raise your hands. <laughs> if you think they don't, raise your hands. <laughs> Quad erat demonstrandum. Uh, Rita, a quick comment from you and then a last word from Carl. I, I just want to tell you that She Copenhagen, is developing ports and urban development, by the way. Yes, yeah. Copenhagen City and Port Development. We are also the port authorities of Copenhagen. And I think, so we manage all, all the, the port activities. And so we have interests in both development and the port activities. And it is, we need to balance it and we need to be efficient on both. Okay, and Rita, do you think that ports optimize the use of land? Uh, yes, really. They should, yeah. Right, we believe you in everything <laughs> you say, but <laughs> yeah. maybe not this. <laughs> Carl. I will give a very uh, short answer. The Port Authority of New York and New Jersey is governed by two governors, um, the governor of New Jersey and the governor of New York. It is an, uh, an entity in, in chaos at the moment, and um, so dealing with it uh, is virtually impossible for the city of New York. Um, uh, some decades ago, the city did trade its working port with and most of the working port is now uh, not in the city of New York. And uh, that's one of the reasons why we do have land that is potentially usable and is being used for other uses. At the time that trade was made, I think there was a lot of criticism of it on the New York side, but um, I think it turned out to be a very wise trade. And as we've seen, especially over the last few years, uh, our, our Port Authority has uh, become uh, virtually uh, uh, ungoverned. <laughs> and there are, there are even people in Carl City who are planning to, or proposing to close it down, aren't correct. they? There are. So, ladies and gents, I'm gonna, I can't, I'm afraid, ask any more, add in any more questions. Right. When you were talking about affordable housing, were you talking yeah. about rent? Yeah, and I, I should say, in New York City, New York City is a renter city. It's not. It's. I think affordable housing on the ownership side is much more difficult in many ways. Um, um, in, it, in New York, two thirds of our households rent. Um, mixing rental and affordable housing, we have found 
uh, mixing rental and ownership housing and providing affordable housing, we have found an insurmountable problem. So um, fortunately or unfortunately, most of our households are renter households and it's from, I think it's easier for us to deal with affordability from that perspective. Richard? The vast majority of, of the social housing in Glasgow is, is to rent, but we have a number of rent to buy schemes for social housing and um, working with our housing associations throughout the city. So it's a mixture. Um, so, you know, it, it still involves subsidy, it still, it still involves all of the things that you heard that Jurgen say, but it is, it is a mixture in the city. And I would just make the point that, at least for some governments, it's been easier to prove that assisting with affordable ownership is a way of increasing supply, whereas affordable rental is often about churning the existing stock in different ways. We'll come back to that. I'm going to have to tell you, I'm going to have to say that I'm late introducing our final speaker, so we're going to have to stop. So, sorry about that. So there you have your view. It was a good organization made bad by politicians. Right, there we are. Now, um, we've had a fantastic conversation. I'm not going to give you a big long summary. Suffice to say that I think you've seen the tip of the iceberg in terms of the expertise that's been assembled here in Auckland for these few days. We're very committed to sharing knowledge and we're very committed to making sure that knowledge is available to Auckland as well. So please remember to look at the Water Edge website where a lot of the material that these wonderful people have been talking about is there. No more um, conclusion from me because I want to invite Councillor Chris Darby, who's the Chairman of the Planning Committee of Auckland Council, to come and close the seminar. Well, thanks, thanks Greg. That's great. Uh, I'm Chris Darby, an Auckland Councillor, and we're just uh, four weeks into our new Auckland Council, and uh, Mayor Phil Goff sends his apologies. He, he was here at the opening uh, and greeting for you all um, on the stage and many in the audience uh, earlier in the day. Uh, he sends his greetings, um, but could not be here tonight. So my uh, remit as chair of the planning committee is in the space of transport, and it's with water, it's with waterfronts, it's with healthy waters, aka stormwater, the port future, central wharves, and urban regeneration, and the list goes on. So tonight's discussion on uh, living on the water is totally apt to us, and we all understand that and get that, I'm sure. And it brings together two very important threads and uh, that Auckland is grappling with, and we will be grappling with this for some decades, I imagine. Uh, housing and uh, our growing population, without sacrificing you know, the very things that bring us all here and that we value and love about this place and our, our waterfront and waterfronts, plural they are, um, and I think it is, it is critical that we understand and, and uh, grab the, the two Gs as uh, one of the Ngāti Whātua uh, members who I met recently at Apofuri reminded me of. And I do acknowledge all the mana whenua and that are here, if not uh, present, in spirit who have uh, long occupied this place and who will be guiding us uh, in, in our governance of it. But uh, he said to me, he said, look, 
Chris, just uh, when you embark on this planning committee role, he says, just remember the two Gs. I thought he was referring to some Nadifata investments in equine or something like that. But he was referring to growth and guardianship. And he was referring to the guardianship of people and guardianship of the environment and not growth at all costs. And I think we all get that, but it was a, a very timely reminder and I think we're being reminded of that here today as well. Firstly, I'd like to thank Greg again for uh, moderating this session, enlivening it has been, another somewhat provocative. I like the way you ask those questions and you oblige people to put hands up or down or hold on. Uh, that was quite revealing and I'll refer to one of those in a minute. Uh, Greg is a, a long time cheerleader uh, for Auckland. He plays here and away uh, and it's good to have him back. And um, tonight he's managed to lift the, the engagement and debate on and um, lift the international learnings out of today and here tonight on the stage and apply those experiences to our, our challenges and our, especially our context. There's one thing to, to look at these international examples but I think we all need to recognise that uh, they are from other cities and other lands and we're in a different hemisphere in a different part of the world uh, and we have got to understand our context and make it for ourselves. Take those learnings, but it's not about just uh, a, trans a quick translation and uh, inserting those learnings uh, purely into this place. This place is absolutely unique. And um, the people of Tamaki Makaro, particularly Mana Whenua, remind us of that. So context is everything, and that's our point of distinction going forward. Um, Māori came here a thousand years ago and they arrived by the water and they saw this harbour, the Waitamata, and they created their place here and they gifted a lot of this place to us, the former governors of the city. It is a very special place. It's, they discovered the headlands, they discovered the, the fertile um, volcanic basins, they retreated to Maunga for defence, but they also retreated to the Maunga for variation and living as well but they relied on uh, those waterways and the harbours for movement and for harvest. And th those harbours that they found um, were absolutely prolific. They are not prolific today, far from it. And that's something that I probably want to stress is the challenge we've got in the environmental space in the water area. And they were life-sustaining, um, for numerous hapu and many, many tribes uh, in the Auckland area. It was so healthy here. Now, we, we reside in a very special place. Our context is a city that is gripped by two oceans. Not many places have that. But that, that, that city is also punctured by three great harbours, not one, the Wairamata, the Kaipara, uh, one of the biggest harbours in the world, and the Manukau. It's those. Those three harbours are all magnificent. It is not just about the Wairamata and this little part of all the waterfronts. We have 3,200 kilometres of coastline. It's immense. We have 600 beaches, 21,000 kilometres of inland waterways. That's the whole of the Auckland region. 72 freshwater lakes. It's incredible. And we have six million people that are traversing the water by ferry, just approaching six million in two weeks' time, in fact. We are, we are bound to track six million people going by ferry across our waterways, mainly in the Wairamata, uh, per annum. 
And to cap it all off, we've got 1,200 millimetres coming from up there, as we heard, uh, I think it was through during Richard's presentation. Don't take that too personally, Richard. Um, so we are well endowed in the natural assets. We haven't done well in the built assets uh, overall. We've done pretty poorly, and that has to be faced up to. So um, those numbers sound pretty impressive, but the health of our natural systems, we have got work to do, tremendous work to do. Uh, we are still piping natural systems in Auckland at the rate of kilometres per year. We hope to be reversing that. Um, the Watamata and Hauraki Gulf overall, the fish biomass, is in massive decline. It's at an all-time low, all-time low, huge challenge for us. The estuary sediments uh, in just in this harbour of the Waitamata, they are laden with zinc and copper uh, from building materials and from brake linings. And that's what the research tells us. Um, that is the bare bone facts of it all. And then we've got um, a certain president-elect, he describes uh, the small issue of sea level rise. We've got that to challenge as well. And uh, so tonight we've heard some great input from Rita from Copenhagen, a beautiful city that I visited about eight years ago and was really struck by, and a city that is wrapped by waterways, uh, similar but different to ours. Um, a city that I noticed when I was there, I, didn't, I wasn't aware of Paper Island at that time, uh, eight years ago, probably it was still in the planning stage. But a city that I noticed was uh, very proud in the juxtaposition of contemporary architecture with its historic architecture. And I think by the look of Paper Island, I can see uh, unashamed modern architecture just over the water from the historic core of old Copenhagen. Uh, something to learn from there. Jürgen Hamburg, it's a beautiful city. I was there recently as well. And uh, way, way up the river there, I, it took me a some time to come to terms with the proximity of uh, the ocean to the city, 100 plus kilometres, yet it is a water edge city and very proud city state with a lot of its own special legislation. Um, wonderful concert hall there and in Copenhagen a magnificent opera house. I think the Maersk family may have uh, funded that, it was the Maersk dynasty. Um, and the concert hall there in uh, Hamburg as well, uh, through philanthropy. Glasgow, I haven't been there of recent, many decades back for me, but uh, lovely to, uh, to hear that the Clyde is being rediscovered by Glaswegians. Thank you, Richard. Carl, over in New York there, um, I think we've got a lot of learnings on affordable housing and how we need to uh, uh, deal with that issue in Auckland. Uh, we are only just touching it at the moment, and uh, that is going to be an enormous challenge for us. Uh, one thing I did get, and uh, I, I had a nice takeaway, and, and Greg, you provoked um, the no hands up on who likes a waterfront stadium. I couldn't help but look at those, at least a couple of cities, and probably all four, but particularly Hamburg and, and Copenhagen, where the great anchors of their waterfronts are cultural institutions, and we very quickly defer to a footy stadium as the solution. And I was encouraged to see no hands go up for that tonight. <laughs> Let's have that debate, please.
So we have the opportunity to start to transition from a port city to a, a city that is about its people and, and about its environment. I'm not suggesting we're not going to be a port city anymore. Uh, we'll still have an active port on this edge. And then there's the possibility that we might relocate some of our freight or all of our freight to uh, the Manukau Harbour, and that could be an airport, uh, airport harbour and a, a sea freight harbour. But we'll get through that as we progress our port future study uh, recommendations. I think uh, we've got some challenges in reaching this part of, of our harbour, our waterfront. As I came down here from the town hall, I had to navigate first Customs Street, the sewer of cars on Customs Street, and then I got across that one, got through Lower Queen Street, and then I had to navigate the next sewer of cars, which was Key Street. I think, folks, that's something that we need to look at, look at all those barriers that are linking or stopping us be linked to the, this waterfront and to other waterfronts. Um, I imagine our city centre waterfront is not just something that we come down to and visually connect. I want to come here and immerse myself in this city waterfront. I want to come down here and see others come down at lunchtime and immerse themselves maybe off diving platforms, swimming platforms. Not just treat the water as something that is uh, uh, to be looked out onto. We, we need to improve the health of this water clean up our stormwater and actually have it be worthy of diving into it in our lunch times. I used to fish at the end of this wharf as a kid. I used to come from Papatoetoe with my mates and I used to catch black snapper at the end of this wharf. Porori is the Māori word and I'm sure some others in this room have too. Uh, I would like to see that be uh, a possible and not be 30 years away but let's make it 5 and 10 years away. I imagine a city centre that is uh, with localised energy systems, that is uh, prolific with life and natural life, um, that reflects our biculturalism as well, and also reflects the diversity of Auckland of the other 200 plus cultures, ethnicities and nationalities that make us all up, but particularly to reflect our biculturalism, and I'm emphasising um, a Māori presence or, or uh, and recognition, and a real recognition on this waterfront and our others. Um, and, and, and I think our waterfront needs to be connected by active and public transport, uh, not private transport. Private transport is ruining uh, our access to this waterfront. And we've talked about affordable housing here today, and I think it's going to be very important that we uh, keep the question of equitable access to waterfronts. These can't be just gentrified uh, places for those that can afford to come here. We need to think about the whole of society in uh, designing our waterfronts and ensuring that they can all come here. So what's ahead for us in Auckland? Um, well, we've got a new council, and this new council is ambitious in, in really rediscovering not just this waterfront, but all of our waterfronts. Um, There's been some great work done. Panuku, Richard, your Panuku Development Auckland and has, doing, has been doing some great work. The Viaduct Harbour, of course, we, we got a glimpse of that possibility back in the late 90s. Wynyard Quarter, tremendous work being done there. North Wharf, ASB Waterfront Theatre just opened. Go and explore that. Grid Auckland, the technology that's coming out of Grid Auckland. Two significant residential projects over in the Wynyard Quarter unfolding now. 
The new council wants to progress the Port Future Study recommendations. We've already talked about it informally and Mayor Phil Goff is ambitious in that area. We want to look at the triggers for relocation of the commercial port. Um, it won't be something that's going to be happening anytime near soon, but we need to be looking long on that one. We need to further consider the uh, locations for that future commercial port, be it the Firth of Thames or the Manukau. And we probably need to examine the need for an Upper North Island uh, port strategy, which uh, a new number of governments have resisted. We cannot afford to just keep pushing that one out. There will be no more Bledisloe debacles on the watch of this council. We will not allow that to happen again. That was an embarrassment for Auckland, but didn't it wake us all up? It was a, that was one good outcome of that. So the ferry basin redevelopment is something we'll be looking at, but that will be on the back of a central wharf strategy rescope and refresh and looking at the whole of waterfront rather than in parts. And I think we've failed in some respects by looking at it in parts and not looking at whole of waterfront from freight to the east right through to Sky Path and Harbour Bridge in the east and in the west. And so maybe a single entity rather than uh, multiple entities that we've uh, had to date. So that's just a glimpse of some of the things. There was a question about the east-west link um, and we would, we've mandated Panuku Development Auckland to open up the Onehunga Wharf and there are some negotiations with the port company proceeding right now. We're looking at a project on the headland at, at at Wynyard, but that will all be socialised with you and, in, and you will help inform those outcomes. It will not be council doing it uh, alone. Um, the East-West Link is, a, is a, an interesting example and I, I, I think our guests today need to share with that one because there is an example where we are walling off the waterfront, doing something that most cities in the world are reversing, taking roads like that out. And it is almost a major motorway severing off the estuary or, or, or the Manukau Harbour in that part. Quite the opposite is happening in other cities. I think we've got a challenge there and we can't let that one just get ahead of us at the moment. So there's a glimpse of some of the things that we're, we're doing. The Water Edge Symposium continues tomorrow and I wish you all well in, in that. Go to the, uh, the website there, advancewateredge.com, and you'll learn more. Uh, I want to thank Auckland Conversations, our council team, Panuka Development Auckland. Um, thank you very much for putting this together, inviting our guests and uh, uh, allowing them to share the ideas. This is the last event, last Auckland Conversations for the year, uh, and we've had some great ones. Uh, we'll have more next year. We've got more plans, so keep an eye out on our website there. In the meantime, I encourage you to start thinking of not just this waterfront, but all those waterways that I mentioned, uh, all the coastline, the 3,200 kilometres of coastline, um, those 72 freshwater bodies, all those opportunities that we also need to uh, turn and face the sun on. Um, because they, there is more than just this waterfront, as you well know. So keep your finger on the pulse and stay with us and let's build our Auckland together and face out all of those waterfronts together. Um, keep an eye on conversations next year. Uh, I 
employ you to have a wonderful summer and I'm sure a lot of that's going to be out on the water and I thank Rita and Jürgen and Richard and Carl and Greg for a very stimulating evening. Thank you very much. You've been listening to the podcast of Auckland Conversations brought to you by Auckland Council and our sponsors Jib and Resine. For more information, visit our website, conversations.aucklandcouncil.govt.nz. Auckland Conversations is proudly produced by Tandem Studios. 